We are continuing our sermon study on the Ten Commandments. This week we come to commandment number six. So I'm going to ask that you stand as I read commandment number six. It can be found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. So if you have a Bible, please get your eyes on Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Let's read God's word together. You shall not murder. Let's read it together because it's such a short verse. And to have you stand for those four words seems a little bit um, unthoughtful. Ready? Let's read it together. You shall not murder. One more time. You shall not murder. You may have a seat. George Floyd. You've heard his name a lot this year. And though you've never met him, you feel like you know him. Or at least you know enough about him that you've developed an opinion about what happened to him. Why did the death of George Floyd on May 25th create such an uproar? There are many complex reasons, but the most important reason is tied to the three words that can be heard coming out of his mouth in the horrific video that many of us watched through tear-filled eyes. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Over 20 times, George Floyd cried out, I can't breathe, as he lay on the ground with a knee on his neck until his breath was gone. No more cries for his mom. No more crying out, I can't breathe. No more inhaling. No more exhaling. After eight minutes and 46 seconds of a knee pressed on his neck, George Floyd's breath had been snuffed out. I agree with what I heard from Pastor Charlie Dates, that when Christians think about George Floyd, our minds ought to jump past the scene of him laying on the ground, past the protests that ensued, past our opinions about Black Lives Matter, past the discussion about police reform, past Breonna Taylor, past Ahmaud Arbery, past the civil rights movement, past the horrors of American slavery, past the countless and horrific acts of hate, violence, murder, and genocide so rampant through the history of our world. And our hearts and minds ought to land back in the Garden of Eden. When God stooped down and picked up the shape of a man that he had formed from the dust of the ground and breathed into that man the breath of life. As we think about the death of George Floyd and the death of so many others, before we get caught up in the legitimate discussions about sociology about political ideology. We ought to go theological. Upon receiving the very breath of God, Adam had life. And it's because of this truth that the words of George Floyd, I can't breathe, matter so much. As people of the book, we're, we're Christians here. Some of you may be exploring Christianity and you may not consider yourself a person of the book yet. But those of us who, who believe in Yahweh, the one true God, who have surrendered our life to him, who have received the forgiveness of sins through the Son, Jesus Christ, we're people of the book. And as people of the book, we believe life is sacred. Human life is a holy gift from a holy God. 
Every human being is an image bearer of God. Therefore, every taking of human life is a tragedy worthy of our tears. And while the death of George Floyd has revealed many social and political problems in our country, more concerning to me is how it's revealed theological problems within the church. The problem is that we often suffer from a shallow and selective understanding of the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei is a theological term for us being created in the image of God. And I think Christians far too, offer, far too often suffer from a shallow and selective understanding or application of this biblical theology. We have a shallow and selective application of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. See, we, leave, we live steeped in a culture that disregards the sacredness of human life. And in our church culture, where we often utter that we believe in the sacredness of human life, we often apply this theology or apply this belief in selective ways. It's 2020 in America. Murder is rampant, and we are often complacent. This morning, as we study the Sixth Commandment, I want us to look at the big picture and understand the biblical teaching of the, the Sixth Commandment in the Old Testament. I want us to look at the New Testament deepening and Jesus' reckoning. So, so three, four short words in this command, right? Exodus twenty thirteen: you shall not murder. In fact, in Hebrew, it's even shorter. It's two words, no murder. And so to build a sermon off of that, here's what I want to do, a little bit of an overview, a bigger picture, Old Testament teaching, understand what does God mean? What does this command to not murder actually mean practically for us? How does the New Testament deepen this command? And then how does Jesus deal with it? How does Jesus deal with us? But before we do, I want to pray one more time. Would you pray with me? God, there is no one like you, and, you, and yet you made us to be like you when you picked up the lump of clay that you had master, masterfully formed from the dust of the ground and breathed into Adam your very breath of life, you declared mankind good. But Lord, we confess that we don't always reflect what is good. Father, we confess that we are often selective in the application of our belief that all people are created in your image and likeness. We are a nation and a church of murderers. We kill the unborn. We neglect the born whom we, whom we deem less worthy. We put our interests and well-being above the interests and well-being of others. We harbor bitterness. We hold grudges. We fester in anger. We spew insults and we justify hate. And in doing so, we devalue the lives of those to whom you have given life. Lord, forgive us. Heal us. Renew us. And now, God, I ask that you would reveal yourself to us as we study your sacred sixth commandment. Amen. Amen. 
Well, as we look at the sixth commandment this morning, the first point here is to understand the Old Testament teaching. What we need to do if we're going to understand this commandment and apply it here thousands of years later is we have to understand the heart of it. What is God, what is Yahweh, the one true God, getting at with the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. Here's the big idea. It's that human life is sacred, therefore most taking of it is prohibited. That's the big understanding. If we're going to talk about murder and hate, we have to start with what, what gives value to human life? Why does it matter? See, because if we go too far into kind of the world's thinking and if we drill down into the understanding of our day and into the secular thinking and the common thinking, the modern thinking of the world, if we believe in survival of the fittest, there is no, nothing wrong with murder. Where does human life come from? Where does its value come from? If there's not a creator who said it is good, what makes it good? What separates us from the animals? What makes the imago Dei, the, the human life, the imago Dei, the image of God, different? Well, that's what it is. It's that we have the image of God. Life is sacred, and therefore, most taken of it, it is prohibited. That's the big idea of the Old Testament and really the New Testament teaching about killing, about murder. Some of you grew up on the, on the, um, the King James Version, and it says, you shall not kill. And so then some people have interpreted the word kill in the Old Testament to be a pacifistic thing where, where people are never called to take life. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. What does justify killing? See, the, the Hebrew word, it, it is murder. It's the intentional killing of someone else. And we're going to drill into what that means. But before we do, human life is sacred. Therefore, most taking of it is prohibited. That's even why I put the word most in there. Because not all taking of human life is prohibited in the scriptures. But most of it is. And much of what we experience here and now in our culture is murder, not simply killing. And so to, to get at the heart of this, let's look back at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Turn in your Bible or flip on your phone to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. I'm bummed about the coronavirus because less people bring Bibles to church and I can't hear the pages flipping because you just slide your phone. It's okay. I'll get over it. I hear one page turning. I love that. Genesis chapter 1, starting verse 26. Then God said, who did he say anything to? Jesus, the Son, who's existed eternally with God the Father and the Holy Spirit of God. Three persons, one essence, one God, living in community, living within God's holy hierarchy in the Trinity itself. God involving Jesus and the Spirit in creation says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, God had created mankind in his image and likeness, in the image and likeness of God himself. Yahweh, the one true God, in relationship with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Flip over to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. 
You know, some people will wonder, why in Genesis 2 is it worded this way? And why in Genesis 1 is it worded that way? Like, what, what's the order of creation? How long did creation happen? Was it six days? Was it thousands of years? And the point of Genesis 1 and 2 isn't to give you a scientific textbook of the mechanics of creation. It's a poetic telling of what God did. That he spoke creation into being. That he formed creation with his own will, with his own power, with his own hands. And specifically, that he breathed into mankind the breath of life. And so don't get caught up on the mechanics and the details here and miss the point that Genesis 1 and 2 is this poetic, beautiful picture of Yahweh, this great God who created a people to be in a relationship with him and one another. In Genesis 2, 7, Then the Lord, Yahweh, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Yahweh formed from the ground Adam. Breathed into Adam the very breath of life. The ruach of God. The breath of God. That brought this, this lifeless lump of clay that had be, been formed intricately to life. Human life is sacred because human life was given by the breath of God. It was created from the dust of ground and animated by the breath of God. All of us are products of the earth. Where did, where did God form Adam? From the earth, from the dust of the ground, where some odd combination of earth and breath. And the dignity, the value, the sacredness of human life comes that comes from the fact that God, Yahweh, created man and breathed into him the breath of God and then created a suitable helper, a co-companion, a co-heir, a co-ruler to rule alongside Adam, giving him Eve. This is the sacredness of human life. This is what Genesis 1 and 2 tells us. Now, look at Genesis chapter 9. This is after the fall. So as we know, Genesis chapter 3, in comes the serpent tempting Adam and Eve to overthrow God's holy hierarchy, to, to take matters into their own hands, to try and be like God. They, they eat from the forbidden fruit, and life begins to fracture. All the pain, all the disease, all the, all the pressure, all the racism, all the angst, all of the hatred, all of the murder that we experience as a result of mankind, God's creation, who had received God's breath, trying to take matters into our own hands. And so it begins to unravel. And you know, Genesis chapter 4, we have the first murder, brother killing brother, Cain killing Abel. And it continues, it continues, it continues. And, and, and in Genesis chapter 6, it's gotten so bad that God says, I'm going to wipe out these humans, these sacred humans who I gave my breath. They have so distorted my creation. They have so tried to, tried to take matters into their own hands that I'm going to send a flood. And I'm going to start over. He finds a righteous man named Noah. Now, the, the word righteous for Noah doesn't mean that he was this perfect religious guy. It means that God had favor upon him. God said, I, I just, I, I'm selecting a man in his family that I'm going to preserve and I'm going to restart with them. And so this great flood comes, covers the earth. God preserves Noah and his family. And then we get into Genesis chapter 9. And here's what God says after the flood subsides and the command that he gives to Noah. Look at Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Remember that command? 
given to Adam and Eve. The fear and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish in the sea. There's a reason why animals run from us. This morning, 5.30 a.m., I was sitting in my chair, getting ready, kind of reading through this, praying through this, and a centipede crawled out, ran across the floor. I jumped. I, I hate those things. Can I get an amen on that? They are the worst. But here it says that, that that centipede is actually more afraid of me than I am of it. Internally, I didn't feel like that was true. But in reality, yes, as I go to try and kill it, the thing scurries. I got it. But, but this is a reality, even from the fall. Now there's this fracture between, between God's creation, mankind, and, and, and his lesser creation, the animals. Now there's this fear. There's this distance. There's this division. Verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And so now after the flood, now God is, some people will say that they were vegetarians before. I tend to think so. Not a big debate to get wrapped up into. It doesn't really matter. After the flood, God says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. See, before the flood, I think they had green plants. They got all the nourishment they needed from amazing fruits and vegetables in the garden that didn't taste like broccoli. Broccoli, I think, is a, is a result of the fall. Probably tasted like steak and donuts before the fall, but... I digress. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I gave you green plants. I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So you can eat meat now, but not with blood. Don't eat the blood. Cook your steaks rare. Uh, not rare. Well done. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. This is key. Verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. For his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. You see the sacredness of human life there? For every shedding of human blood, there will be a reckoning. That life shall now be taken. Why? And in every account in the Old Testament, murder was met with capital punishment. Why? Because human life is sacred. Because, as 9.6 says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. There's something so unique, something so sacred, something so set apart about the human beings, about the, our, our species, that, that we're unlike the animals. We're unlike the rest of creation. That human life is so sacred that the taking of human life is met with the taking of the life who took the other. Now, let's move on to the next slide and just discuss this for a minute. Why do I say most? Well, because not the, the Sixth Commandment, it does not prohibit the taking of life in self-defense, capital punishment, or just war. These, these things are all throughout the Old Testament. It does prohibit murder, voluntary, or involuntary manslaughter. 
So when we read the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, what does it mean? What, how do we boil it down? What's it getting at? And again, it does not prohibit the taking of life in self-defense, capital punishment, or just war. This is throughout the Old Testament. Some people say now we live underneath the New Testament and no longer is the taking of human life in self-defense, capital punishment, or just war allowable. I'm not getting into that. It's a complex issue. What, what, what is self-defense? Who's the one to judge if this was an act of self-defense or if the person felt threatened? Capital punishment, it, it's been abused in our country. We can't deny that. There's, a, there's so much information out, out there about how our criminal justice system has used capital punishment in an unjust, unholy, unethical, despicable way. Does that mean that capital punishment is, is always wrong in our day and age? I, I don't know. Just war? And the classic example is, wasn't it right to, to take Hitler out? To try and take Hitler out? You know, take out one man to save millions? Make your own decision on that. Do your own study. Think it through yourself. And I, I wrestle with, never mind. I'm not even going to go there. Because the, the reality is, Here's part of what I mean when I, when I say that early on when I set this up and I said that oftentimes we're selective with how we apply the sixth commandment. Human beings, we like to stay on the peripheral issues. This is why when we see a video of George Floyd, we get caught up in debate about what happened, about what we ought to do, about what's wrong with the police or what's wrong with the inner city poor community. We get caught in these side debates and there's a time and a place to have those discussions. There's a time and a place to have the discussion about self-defense, capital punishment, and just war. But as human beings, we like to live there and we like to keep these commands at a distance. We like to talk about other people's issues. We like to talk about big picture issues, but we really don't want to drill down to the heart. We're going to stick with this. Jesus is going to to drill it down to our hearts. And so I don't want to get stuck on talking about self-defense, capital punishment, or just war. All I want you to know is that the scriptures do not prohibit the taking of life in self-defense, capital punishment, or just war. We could do like weeks-long seminars on trying to figure out what that looks like. We're not going to do it. Secondly, it does prohibit murder and voluntary or involuntary manslaughter. So murder is kind of typically what we think of when we hear the word murder. It's, it, it's premeditated taking of somebody's life for whatever reason it may be. Voluntary manslaughter is rage that in the moment led to killing someone. This is Cain and Abel. Cain becomes jealous of Abel's sacrifice, picks up a rock, and kills him in a moment of rage, in a moment of anger. This is when, when, when a, a fight breaks out and it ends in someone being beaten to death or somebody pulling out a gun and shooting or somebody stabbing somebody. This is a moment of rage that leads to killing. Involuntary manslaughter, this is when you're drinking under the influence, you hit another car, and a person dies. This is when you're texting and driving. It's not planned. It's not a moment of rage. It's an accident that takes the life of an image bearer of God, but the accident happened because you were breaking a common sense or a common good or from your government trying to help you. It came because you broke their laws or you were negligent. It comes from neglect in medical practice. 
It's what happened in North Minneapolis two weeks ago when Cortez William, a 13-year-old boy, was killed in a car accident when him and his two friends were speeding through the city with a stolen car. Cortez Williams' teacher attends our church. An, an accident. But murder. And so for most of us, this seems rather simple, right? I mean, the average person can look at these and say, okay, I haven't been in a situation of self-defense, capital punishment, or just war. Well, there's always discussion about war in my country and in the world, so we need to do a little bit of thinking there. But then when it comes down to what it does prohibit, premeditated, premeditated killing, murder, or voluntary or involuntary manslaughter, I think most of us, like, okay, I'm going to try to follow the rules. Hopefully, you know, when I sneak a peek at my text, I don't crash and kill somebody. Could be you. But if I have enough restraint, if I follow the laws, if I don't get into a certain scenario where my, ra- where my rage and my anger will allow me to kill somebody, I think I, can, I think I have enough self-control and self-discipline to not do that. So the sixth commandment doesn't really apply to me. Pretty easy to follow. The majority of us have not broken this. But the problem is, like every command, Jesus comes onto the scene in the New Testament and he deepens it. He doesn't keep it at the periphery. He doesn't just talk about self-defense, capital punishment, just war, voluntary murder, or, or manslaughter. He brings it to the heart. And so here's the New Testament deepening of this command. Jesus teaches us that hatred of brother, and I put brother in quotes because it could be brother or sister, neighbor, friend, family, foe. It doesn't matter. The context of what Jesus teaches us is that hatred of another human being, hatred of an image bearer of God, is a sin of the heart that incurs the same judgment as murder. Hatred, hatred of the heart is a sin that incurs the same judgment as that of murder. How can that be? Well, let's look at it in Jesus' own words. Flip to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, is, is, it can really be viewed as Jesus coming and kind of taking the Ten Commandments and deepening them, expanding them, revealing our heart as I've said a few times throughout the sermon series, that the law reveals, but grace heals. And so the Old Testament law, do not murder, it reveals. Jesus comes on the scene and he actually reveals it deeply. People are like, I, I, I've lived my life without murder and I'm pretty sure I can continue to live my life without murder. But Jesus comes and, and he deepens the command to reveal the sin sickness of the human heart. The law reveals. And so Jesus comes on revealing the brokenness of the world that we live in. Look at verse 21. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Sixth commandment. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. What's the judgment in the Old Testament for murder? Capital punishment, death penalty. So Jesus says, you you have heard it said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
Come to terms quickly with the accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. See how Jesus deepens this command? Hatred of another person, hatred of an image bearer of God is a sin inside the heart. You may have the self-discipline. You may have the right guardrails in your life that hatred won't boil up into actual physical murder. But hatred in the heart incurs the same judgment as murder. Why? Why so severe? Because hatred in the heart is the seed that breeds murder, yes, but hatred in the heart is also the seed that creates systems of oppression. Hatred in in the heart is what distances family members. Hatred in the heart is what tears churches apart. You don't have to take somebody's physical life to destroy their mental, emotional, spiritual life. Hatred breeding in our hearts is the seed that leads to division and brokenness and death, whether it's physical death or spiritual, emotional, or mental death. Jesus gives us three categories here that that are on the same par as murder. Anger. He says, but I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother, the, the Greek word used here for anger is the same word as wrath. Anyone who is wrathful towards their brother. Wrath means a settled opposition. So, so when you hear someone say God has wrath, don't take that to mean that God is just this angry, vindictive person. It means that he is a settled opposition to what is wrong. God has wrath towards murder. He has a settled opposition towards his image bearers lives being taken by other image bearers. He has a settled opposition towards brokenness, towards sin, towards pain, towards rejection. And here, he says that any human being who has a settled opposition, who has anger or wrath in their heart towards another human being, they're just as liable to hell as murder. It's the same as if they've murdered. So let me ask you, church family, Do you have any settled opposition in your heart towards anyone? Is there anyone who says or thinks or does stuff that you're so opposed to, that you have settled in your heart, that you are opposed to them, they are the enemy, they get no grace, no mercy, no understanding from you? If so, there's the seed of murder in your heart. Next one is insults. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. To, to insult somebody, yes, it's, it's name-calling, but it's this deeper thing of, of holding somebody in contempt. It's considering somebody else, an image-bearer of God, as worthless or expendable. This, this is where the sin of racism comes in, that, that there's certain people and certain races and certain creeds and certain colors who see other creeds and other races and other colors and other cultures as lesser than, maybe even expendable. This is where the sin of abortion creeps in. We have people in our church who have had abortions. So I want to treat this topic with extreme sensitivity. I've yet to talk to somebody who's had an abortion who's not broken over the circumstances, over the choice, over the reality that they had an abortion. So if that's you today, we see you, we love you, 
We want to walk through that with you. But, but at the end of the day, this is, this is kind of where it comes from, that holding contempt for this baby in me, and maybe it's a trapped situation. I feel stuck. It's my life or the baby's life. It's my well-being or the baby's well-being. At that point, the baby becomes expendable. Whoever insults his brother or sister or child. This can apply to the neglect of the elderly. The elderly who are neglected in nursing homes and by their own family and by their own kids. The elderly who are taken advantage of by people seeking money and investment and, and estate lawyers who take advantage of the vulnerable elderly people. This applies to how we treat kids and how we look at kids. If we consider them as worth less than us or expendable, this, is, this, is, this applies to how we treat handicapped people and disabled people. Are their lives as meaningful as the life of somebody who has full reasoning and capacity and, and ability to think and reason on their own? Jesus says, if you insult your brother, if you hold contempt in your heart, or if you elevate yourself above them, you are just as guilty of murder as somebody who has murdered, and you deserve hell. Third one, you fool. He says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. It seems really harsh, doesn't it, for name-calling? I mean, I, I was driving up Highway 94 the, a couple weeks ago, and there's a billboard on 94 making fun of one of our politicians that is this sin. And if you turn on your TV, if you look at billboards, if you're on social media, you're going to see this all over the place. There's an election in a couple weeks. Have you heard? As we approach an election, there is so much name-calling I don't care which side of the political aisle you're on. Be careful not to call your opponents fools. Because Jesus is drilling so deep here, considering somebody else is stupid, name-calling them or killing their reputation for your own elevation. That's really what he's getting at here. That you're tearing someone else's reputation down. You are defaming their character. You are destroying their character for your own elevation or for the elevation of, of what you think ought to be elevated, you are committing the sin of murder in your heart. There's something broken in you. There's something twisted in you. There's something in you that, that is the same as murder. Not physical murder, but you're creating to, to life's divisions. You are adding into life's divisions. What is going on in your heart is not bringing healing and unity and joy and love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control to the world. You're working against what God wants to do in the world if you are angry with others, if you have a settled opposition to others, if you are insulting others, if you have this contempt for others, or you think that you or your people or your way is more right and therefore other people are more expendable, and if you're willing to just throw someone else under the bus and defame their character and their reputation for the elevation of your own, you are guilty. Anyone guilty? Flip over to James chapter 4, verse 1 through 2, to continue to see how this plays out in the New Testament. James, the brother of Jesus, who didn't believe in Jesus until he saw the resurrected body of Jesus, he writes to instruct the church, 
James 4, 1 and 2. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that, you, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. So there's the, the birth of physical murder, is this internal, I want what they have. I want, I want things for me. I have these passions at war within me, and I want what I want, and I want it now, and so therefore I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get it. If that means being in a settled opposition to someone thinking they have no hope, there's no grace, there's no mercy, there's no forgiveness for them, they're the enemy. If that's, it's, if that's seeing someone else as expendable because they're in your way to success or power or comfort, if that's just saying they're a fool, they're an idiot, they don't understand life, they, don't, they just don't get it, there's something in you that's not of God, that is the same, it produces the same fruit as murder. Lastly, let's flip to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 through 18. John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who saw Jesus' ministry, who heard Jesus reinterpret the Old Testament, who heard him reapply the sixth commandment, who heard this teaching in Matthew of Jesus saying, whoever says, you fool, whoever is angry, whoever insults is liable to hell. Here's what John picks up years after Jesus had died, resurrected, and gone back to heaven. John instructing the church, verse 11. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. How does Jesus describe hate? Anger, settled opposition, insult, seeing someone as expendable if they're in your way, or simply name-calling and tearing down someone's reputation. By that de definition, I would say we're all guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. And John says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16. But we know love. By this we know love. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. See, here's Jesus' reckoning now. Do you remember Genesis 9, 5 that said, for everyone who takes the blood of another person, their blood is required, their life is required? It, it actually used the word reckoning, that there's a reckoning that has to be paid. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, everyone who hates, everyone who insults, everyone who says, you fool, is a murderer. There's the seed of murder. There's the seed of hate in your heart. Everyone who hates his brother is guilty. We need a reckoning. Verse 16 tells us, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And so Jesus reconciles us to God the Father by giving his own life. Here's the, the, the truth for us, New Testament believer. Here's the grace for us. Regardless of how much you've hated, how much anger you've harbored in your heart, how much bitterness you've held on to, how much judgment you've passed on others, 
Maybe you've taken it to the extent of ending a life. Here's our hope, is that Jesus reckons us. Jesus never hated or murdered, but he was hated and murdered to show us unconditional love and to offer us eternal life. So church, run to Jesus this morning. He reconciles us to God the Father. He reckons us. As we respond this morning, we're going to take communion. We're going to take communion in the spirit of 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. that says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. There's a communion packet in the pew in front of you. We do this every week at Park Community Church because it reminds us that we know love because Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That though he never hated or murdered, he was hated and murdered in unjust execution, unjust trial, unjust execution. He died in our place on our behalf that you and I could receive life. So I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 through 6 as the band comes forward. And then as they play out the last song, take communion whenever you feel led and ready, remembering that Jesus died in your place on your behalf, that he perfected the sixth commandment and applied his perfection of it to you so that you can be reconciled to God. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he, has, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought peace. And by his wounds we are healed.